Amen. Well, you can remain standing and grab your Bibles and turn to Malachi chapter 3. We'll be reading through verses 6 through 15 to close out the chapter and this second to last study of the book. Malachi 3, 6 through 15. Here now as God speaks to you through his holy, inspired, and life-giving word. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Thus far ends the reading of God's word. Let's ask for his help once again. Father, we do come before you this evening and ask for your blessing from heaven that you would pour down upon your people a fresh blessing from your spirit that we might know your word and know what you have spoken to us, that we might uh, hear your word as we must, and that we would uh, look to you for our life and our salvation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have been with us uh, throughout our study of the book of Malachi, you will have noticed quite quickly that there are these series of exchanges between God and his people, these collisions where uh, the people of Israel are standing on one side with their own viewpoint, and here comes the Lord to confront them in the way that they are thinking. And perhaps like no other chapter in this book, we find collision after collision after collision, where the people are standing hard in their sins, thinking that they are in the right. And the Lord comes and says, no, you've got it all wrong. And of course, the reasons behind these collisions, uh, the spiritual problems that uh, plagued Israel at this, this time were threefold. Uh, first, there was a carelessness in devotion to the Lord uh, that permeated the land. Uh, they satisfied themselves with their own religious duties, thinking that they had done what is right, uh, but yet the Lord is not pleased with their uh, righteousness. Second, we've seen throughout this book that there are these impious doubts. Uh, there are all of these questions that are found throughout this book, like, how have you loved us? Where is the God of justice? Uh, where the people think that God's character is actually in the wrong. And then thirdly and finally, we see, of course, throughout the book of Malachi, 
is their unfaithfulness in their covenant commitments. First of all, we we studied just a few weeks ago that not only had they been marrying outside of the covenant community, which God had forbid them to do, but they were also divorcing the wives of their youth and they were not participating in the covenantal obligations, giving to the Lord what is his due. And it's all three of these realities that are at play in this text. It seems to come to a head a bit of this collision between the Lord and his people. And the ultimate spiritual problem that's even under those things is that here we have a people who are far from the Lord. They think they are close. They're close enough to have a sense of false assurance. Uh, but they are far enough to be liable to all of the covenantal curses that the law demands. They are a prodigal people. And that's what we find in our passage. And so the Lord's call to them is return. Come home. Come near to me. And they, of course, are a robbing people. Uh, They're robbing the Lord in their tithes and contributions. And so the Lord tells them, test me. See if I don't bless you and receive the rewards of my faithfulness. And that's what we're going to look at this evening. And we want to see the same exact spiritual truth. It's a spiritual truth that we find all throughout the Bible. And we even find that in Psalm 95 where our call to worship came from. Do not harden your hearts. And that's what the people of Israel had done. And that's what we're all liable to do if we cease to listen to the word of the Lord. Uh, But let's first notice uh, that the Lord's call is for them to return. Look at verse 6 with me. It's a note of assurance that he gives to his people. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The Lord reminds them of his covenantal commitment to his people. I do not change. I don't revoke my promises. My compassions, they fail not. This is the whole reason why Israel had not been carted off to some nation and been forgotten forever as a nation. It's because of the Lord's promise does not change. Now to the people of Israel who are hardened in their sins, it seems as though the Lord has changed. His blessings seem slim. His curses seem fierce. The justice system that they once relied upon seemed to have changed as the arrogant and the evil and the wicked are all prospering while the righteous suffer. And so they think, of course, that the Lord's love had grown cold for them. And that's how this book starts. How have you loved us? The Father says, I have loved you. But what we want to see here is that the Lord is telling them, you are reading providence all wrong. I do not change. I cannot change. It's essential to my character. It's a theological term that we call immutability of God. He is unable to change. He couldn't change if he wanted to. Of course, he can't and he doesn't want to. Uh, But this is why Israel had not been consumed. And this is why they haven't been erased. It's not a failure of justice from the Lord, but it's a failure of their own perspective. They have failed to see that their own sins have got them into this position. God is as angry at sin as he always has been and always will be. 
He does not change. Zoe and I were visiting my family this last week, and most of you know that I'm from a small town in Idaho that most of you probably don't even know where it's at. And uh, it always amazes me that when I return back to my hometown, how uh, little things have actually changed, uh, even being gone for something like seven, uh, almost 10 years uh, away from there. It seems like nothing has changed. Yes, of course, businesses come in and go, and uh, little things have changed here and there. But uh, one of the things that I often do when I go back home is I play golf at my uh, home golf course there. And I was telling Zoe after we were uh, pulling up to the parking lot, I bet the guy that I always see on this course is still there. He's always in the same bay hitting uh, golf balls. Every time I visit over the last five years, he's always been there. And sure enough, he was there. Uh, things don't change. I don't think his golf swing has changed either uh, from the last five years. Well, in the same way that the Lord is immutable in his character, Israel, in a way, is immutable. They haven't changed. They refuse to see what the Lord is trying to tell them. Uh, things are going just as they have always gone. You could visit Israel 200 years ago. You would find the same spiritual sins. You could go there 200 years from now. You would find the same spiritual sins. This is what the Lord is calling out in verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Uh, just as the Lord has been steady in his faithfulness and his covenantal commitments, they have been steady in their faithfulness unfaithfulness to their covenant commitments. And so what the Lord does, it's the only thing uh, that can be done as he calls them uh, to come home, to change. Look at, verse, at the rest of verse 7. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. What a promise that the Lord is setting before his people. So much is contained in this single word, return. It's the Old Testament word for repentance. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. It's the, it's the word that we could sum up all of the prophetic message from Isaiah to Malachi. All in this one word, return, O Israel, come back. Renew your commitments to me. Quit your unfaithfulness. Quit thinking that my character is somehow changed, that somehow I have approved of evil. Return to me. He's saying to them, you don't need to live as strangers anymore. Yes, you think you're close, but you're really estranged from me. It doesn't have to go this way any longer. Return to me and I will return to you. And isn't this a wonderful a gospel word, return. It's a word that perfectly fits the parable of the prodigal son. And you can almost picture the father of that prodigal son once his son has dishonored him greatly, has taken his inheritance, has counted his father as dead, goes off to a faraway country to squander all of that inheritance. And you can imagine the father being at the edge of his property line saying, return. Come home. Come back to me. Life is not out there. Joy is not out there. Peace is not out there. Come into my rest. Come be where you belong. You don't need to be a stranger anymore. And this gospel word 
of return that was so true for Israel. It's so true also for us. If you are trapped in your sins in a faraway land, the Lord is saying to you this evening, return, come home. If you have failed in spiritual duties, that you haven't prayed as you should, the Lord tells you the exact same thing. Return, come home. It's all summed up in this one word. The pattern of sin can be broken if only you would return. Of course, we see this truth that James speaks about. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But the spiritually dead heart says with Israel, look at the rest of this verse, how shall we return? Of course, this isn't a serious question of ignorance. It's not that they didn't know how to return. It's an impious question of indifference. And they wanted nothing to do with that returning. Uh, They were content in their own self-righteousness. We don't need a return. How do we return? We're already here. We've already figured it out. We're already offering the sacrifices that you require of us. How shall we return? We're already as close as we can possibly get. It's the same kind of indifference that permeated that land to even the days of Jesus when he showed up on the scene in Jerusalem in Luke chapter 13. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. The Lord says, return. But they say, how shall we return? They didn't want to come back. They were stuck in their sins. So first we see that it is returning to the Lord, but we see a greater spiritual problem that they are, in fact, robbing the Lord. When I was in college, I was walking home one day and, uh, from the school and I lived very close by and I was walking through the alleyway and I began to notice that there were all these papers scattered throughout the alleyway and I, I began to recognize them, that they were my school papers. Somehow they had found themselves in the alleyway and I was a little bit confused and so as I got closer and closer, uh, I saw near the bushes my Bible that was in my car just thrown in there. And I thought, what just happened? And as I got to my car, I noticed that I had been broken into. I had been robbed. And of course, I was a college student. I had nothing really in there of significant value. But of course, if you've had that experience of being robbed, there's that personal rage that comes out of it. How could they do this to me? How could they do something like this? Who do they think they are? And the mystery that we find in the following section is that the Lord is making an indictment that's shocking, that he says his people are robbing him. Something that we wouldn't expect God to say, but it's what he says. Look at verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? And now this is quite provocative. He first asked them a a theological question. Will a man rob God? And kids, I'm sure you can all answer this. And do you think that you can take anything from the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the all-present God of the universe? 
You think it's possible to actually steal from the one who owns everything, even your own very life and breath? Of course, you would answer that as no. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. You can't steal, can't rob from God. But the Lord says, yet, will a man rob God? Yet, you are robbing me. You found, Israel, a way to rob the almighty God of the universe. And so, of course, they respond back and say, how have we robbed you? You can picture all of the self-righteous thoughts thinking, well, we haven't robbed your temple. We didn't take from your priests. How have we robbed you? But the Lord puts them to silence and to shame. You ask, how have you robbed me? It's simple. In your tithes and contributions. And we don't know exactly what Israel was doing to rob God in their tithes and contributions, but we can understand the points. They weren't giving what was due to the Lord. And this was the way that they were, in a sense, robbing him. Under that old covenant system, the people were required to give a tenth of uh, everything that they had, the firstborn of their animals and livestock, the firstborn, or the first uh, parts of their crops. Uh, this was their requirement. Uh, they were to uh, give these things, of course, to contribute to the ministry of the Levites. This was a way that the Lord had set up and arranged that old covenant system that the people would give to support the ministry of the word of the Levites. And so they would take care of their needs. And of course, this didn't just, wasn't just restricted to the Levites, but it was also applied to taking care of the poor, making sure that their neighbors were well supplied. And considering this, It was just 10%. Everything beyond that was uh, considered a free will offering. And considering this in light of how much the taxes they were owed, that they owed to Egypt, it was something like 33% even under Joseph. This was not a burdensome command. 10% to the God who owns all things. The God who gives freely everything to his people, the land, the crops, the livestock. He only requires 10%. And you consider how much governments require from their people. It's just 10%. And yet, somehow, Israel has found this burdensome. Somehow, they have found this command too difficult to follow. Perhaps they had their excuses. The economy was weak. Perhaps they, had, uh, they were stretched too thinly trying to support that second mortgage on the, uh, the beach of the Sea of Galilee. <laughs> there could be all kinds of reasons why they were unable to give to the Lord their tithes and contributions. But the Lord is saying, I don't see this as a financial problem. It's not a financial problem. It's a spiritual one. They were not valuing the ministry of the word by the Levites. They were not helping their poor neighbors. And therefore, the Lord does not treat this as an insignificant sin that he can overlook in in view of greater sins. No, this strikes at the very heart of his character. Look at verse 9. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. 
I don't need to prove to you how much the Bible speaks about giving and money uh, specifically. Uh, But Jesus says quite often in the Gospels, he speaks about money a lot. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. No one can serve two masters. You will either serve God or money. This is a spiritual problem that has existed for all time. Uh, The heart that clings with a white-knuckle grip to earthly possessions, earthly treasures, and that is the heart that will not receive heavenly ones, Jesus says. One minister said, there is no greater litmus test for spiritual vitality than how people view their money. And this, of course, is not to say that It's just about giving the most money possible, that the person that has the most money to give, uh, they're the ones who are in the right. Consider the widow and her two mites. But the Lord does care about his people's pocketbook. Uh, Nothing is left untouched in our lives. Uh, He does require his people to give freely, to give charitably. And this is something that he is not finding in the nation of Israel I heard a story recently from a, a, camp, uh, from a pastor about a, a campus ministry group where the students had questions that were actually quite easy flashed before them on a kind of a projector screen. And the, the questions were just true and false questions. Uh, Jacob was Esau's brother, true or false? Of course, everybody's going to answer quickly. Isaac was Abraham's son, true or false? Adam was Cain's Father, true or false? And then the last question. Take my silver and my gold. Not a mite would I withhold. True or false? You can imagine everyone wasn't as quick to answer that question. But I think the Lord would have us answer that one with sincerity, saying with our hearts, true. Everything I have belongs to him. He has given everything so gracious to to me. It's the least I can do to support his work as he has required me to do. Now, lest we think improperly about what is going on in this passage, that that the Lord is needy and somehow suffering because of the lack of tithes and contributions of his people, notice next how they, it's the people who are missing out. It's not the Lord who's missing out. It's the people who are missing out on the Lord's reward, his blessing. Now look at verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now this is a quite a famous passage here by prosperity preachers who uh, try to use greed to say, well, if you give enough to my ministry, the Lord will bless you tenfold. But of course, you can notice here that the, that the aim behind the Lord's charge here is not financial prosperity. He's not saying, here is a quick way to get rich if you just give a little bit to this ministry and you call this 877 number. And no, the primary aim is that they would be a spiritually blessed people and that they would have the Lord's smiles upon them. And what a challenge the Lord is giving to his people. Bring the full tithe into my house. Honor me in your giving 
and put me to the test. You know, we're commanded not to put the Lord to the test. But here the Lord is saying, put me to the test. See if I won't bless you. See if your needs are not taken care of. That everything that you think you need in your life, if, if it's not fulfilled. You see, the, what the people were missing out on was the Lord's blessing. Consider the character of the Lord contained in this verse. He is unbelievably generous with his people. He doesn't wish to see his people suffer. He doesn't find virtue in a, a very poor people giving everything and suffering because of it. And no, he wants to see his people devoted to him and being blessed because of it. And not only does he promise to bless them, but he also promises to reverse the curse and that he has set upon them. Look at verses 11 and 12. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. All their present problems And the fact that they are diminished as a nation, the fact that they are seeing uh, perhaps famine uh, in the land because of the curses that the Lord has sent upon them, all of them can vanish in a second if they would only quit robbing the Lord in their tithes and contributions. So simple. Nothing extraordinary that the Lord requires of his people to receive this kind of blessing, this kind of reversal of the curses that they have been experiencing But as you will see, the text goes on to show these people, their hearts are hard. They will not hear the Lord's pleas, his entreaties to them. But rather they stick their hand up and say, no more. Look at verses 13 through 15. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. You see, they've missed the point completely. The Lord is holding out his blessing to them and saying, test me, see if I will not grant you everything that you need according to the riches of my grace. And they say, What profit is it to serve God? The arrogant are the blessed one. The evildoers are the ones who prosper. The Lord graciously woos them, calling them to return, and they just stubbornly say, how shall we return? They shrug their shoulders. They say, what is the Lord trying to say to us? And then the Lord, of course, we just saw, firmly rebukes, their robbery of him, and they say scoffingly, how have we robbed you? I hope you see the contrast here between the people and the Lord. His character is firm. It's fixed. It's final. He's gracious, way beyond gracious to his people. They don't deserve this kind of mercy, and yet they just stick their hand up and say, how have we robbed you? The arrogant the wicked, the evildoers out there, they're the ones who are profiting while we're vainly serving God. There's no benefit in the Lord's 
service. I hope you noticed at the beginning of verse 13 that it says, the Lord calls them out by saying, your words have been hard against me. You know, that's the same word that we find in, in Exodus 7, uh, 13, when it says that Pharaoh's heart was hard against the Lord. Uh, the Lord is full and free, never changing, but ever blessing his people. All the while, Israel is empty and poor, never returning, but always storing wrath for the day of judgment. This was the plight of the people at this time. They were a stiff-necked, hard-hearted people that would not be moved, would not be molded by the word of the Lord. Friends, this is what sin does. This is exactly what sin does. It so greatly blinds spiritual sight that you can walk away in pride and arrogance thinking that God is in the wrong while you are in the right. And that somehow his character is lacking while your character is firm and fixed. Sin so deludes the mind into thinking that independence is the way of blessing while serving God is vain. Remember the Lord's character. In this passage, he changes not. And this is why sinful people like Israel are not consumed. It's why sinful people like you and I in this room are not consumed because he is merciful. He pleads with us, return to me, come home, because the Lord does not change. He always is committed to his covenantal purposes. And how can we know that his character is this way? How can we be confident that his heart is full of mercy? Because Israel treated these very same statements with hostility. How can we have confidence? Well, just like in verse 10, when the Lord says, put my character to the test, test me and see if I will not bless you. What does he say in Jesus Christ, but see, haven't I blessed you? Haven't I opened up the windows of heaven and sent you the best, the very best from heaven, my own beloved son, and so that you would not be consumed, and so that you would change, so that you would return home. This is the beauty of the gospel, the Lord's character on full display for his people. See, Haven't I blessed you in the sending of my son? Isn't Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever? Won't he not care for his people? Will he not watch over his people? If he did not withhold his very own son, how will he not graciously give us all things in him is the logic of Paul in Romans 8. His blessings have been opened to us. But are we close to him? Are we resistant? Are we hard-hearted? Thinking that there's a better way out there than serving the Lord. I hope that's not the case for you. I hope you have been able to see with full assurance that the Lord Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is faithful to his promises. Let's pray.
Lord, we know that our sins are many, but we thank you that your mercy is more. Lord, we do know that our hearts are often closed off to you, blinded by the deceitfulness of sin, unwilling to bend or even break beneath your will. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us the spirit that can enable us to be obedient to your commands and to your laws. Lord, may we have full confidence that our Lord Jesus Christ is our compassionate and merciful Savior who does plead with us to return. We pray this in his name. Amen.